So for the last several weeks, we have been looking at church government. Particularly, we've been digging into two kind of uh, offices, positions, um, roles, responsibilities, call it what you want to call it, that we find in Scripture highlighted. We've been spending most of our time um, looking at elders. Today, we'll probably transition from elders into deacons, um, and then in the coming weeks, uh, Lord willing, we will explore how churches, how we find churches organized and structured today. Um, We'll examine our own structure and align it with with the kind of categories that we see, and then we'll also examine that in light of scripture, asking God to give us wisdom. and guidance in how to most effectively structure ourselves. Um, If we're not there yet, how do we get there? What does it look like? What should the target be? All of those types of things. Ultimately knowing, like the goal behind this is not, one, we should always align ourselves with scripture, but also we understand that God in his wisdom has organized the church or seeks to organize the church in a way that we can be most effectively used together. Um, And if we find ourselves um, structuring or aligning ourselves in a way collectively that doesn't perfectly align with scripture, the end result of that will be us being less effective together than we than we could be right so in the same way that like examining scripture personally and exploring how God is sanctifying us as individuals helps us to live more effectively for him in our personal lives a similar type examination happening collectively amongst the body of believers should be should be pointing or helping us align so that collectively we can be more effective, more useful in our daily lives as a body of believers. So if you're wondering why are these things important, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of high level the way that I'm thinking about it and understanding it. So today, Titus chapter one, uh, we left off last week looking at verse nine and we're going to just jump right in to verse nine today. Um, this is going to be one of those things that are kind of, it's the pivoting point of the discussion between the differences that we will identify between um, responsibilities of elders, responsibilities of deacons. Um, so let's pay, let's pay attention to this. We looked last week, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We spent um, the latter part of class last week examining the idea that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and some of the things just to bring us back into the context of that discussion that we should consider here is someone who is an elder, we should not be looking for new ways of doing things, right? Like th- this is, we are we are far down this um, 
kingdom work that God has been doing for us to be expecting new revelation in regards to how churches should operate and how the members of the church should operate. Um, so though there can be different ways that we apply that, different ways that it, that it appears than perhaps, you know, um, our brothers and sisters in the church who lived in a different time than us, um, if we were to look at the core things that make church church throughout the generations, we should see um, the same things um, that are the core and root of those. And the primary, the primary thing there that we should be identifying is the trustworthy word, right? So the word of God being foundational, fundamental to the uh, daily lives of those within the church, to the way that the church itself focuses its energies. It is the word of God that breathed life into us as it was preached or taught to us or as we read it and the Holy Spirit brought it to life within us and, and revealed to us that every word in this book is true. It's the same thing that's happened generation after generation. It is the same exact work that we can guarantee 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000 years from now will be the way that the church effectively works, and that is by holding firm to the Word of God and those who are in this position of elders, those with this responsibility, first and foremost, have been taught this trustworthy Word. They hold firm to it, and this is for some specific reason, reasons that we see here. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So um, I would say here that as we look through Scripture trying to ask ourselves what is, the, what is the difference between an elder and a deacon as far as their roles, responsibilities within the church, any differences that we identify will not be differences in character. I want to say that again. The differences between elders and and deacons is not one of characters. We jump over here in a little bit and examine 1 Timothy chapter 3, the section that runs and concerns itself with identifying the qualifications for a deacon. What we should see there is it's the same call to being a man of high character as an elder. There's no less like, well, if you're a deacon, you can slide in some of these areas of your character where an elder could not. That's not where we find the differences um, that are identified in Scripture. The differences come here in one's, in one's ability, I would say, calling to teach the Word of God. One's um, it ought to be clear when we examine the life of that person that um, aspires to be an elder that they draw close to the Word of God, right? That's the central thing because this individual is going to be giving instruction, right? So the elder, one of the responsibilities, one of the roles um, that we see that's, that's unique in this regard here um, is to give instruction in sound doctrine. So, <clears throat> the teachings of a body of believers, 
is overseen, right? This idea of overseer by the elders in that body of believers. So some of the questions that would that would come about from this: Do we know what's being taught in the classes? In each and every one of the classes that are here, and do those teachings align with sound doctrine, right? And and in and in the event that it does not, how do we ensure that it does align, right? These are things that are the concerns of one who would find themselves um, in this position of being an elder. They may not be teaching every single class. But instruction itself starts with them and trickles down into every class, right? Um, so the things that are being taught within the classes are things that have been taught. Does that make sense? The same idea of holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught is a thing that starts from the top. We should see it in the leaders of a church, but it does not end there. Right, So all teachers that are in classrooms following through a sa- the same pattern with the oversight of the overseers teaches well the trustworthy word that they themselves have also been taught. Right, So this is something that trickles down into all, in, into all settings where the word of God is being taught. Um, so these are things that we need to consider. When we consider, like, how are we structured? How are we organized? When we consider s- specifically primary, primarily the Word of God, is, is that type of leadership, that type of oversight, can we see it in our classroom settings, right? Do we see the Word that's taught in the pulpit echoed in the classrooms? This is important. Right? Have you ever been in a situation in a church where you hear one thing in a pulpit and another thing in the classrooms? Yeah. 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 Yes. It was handled by the church at large yeah. in a business meeting. Yeah. A mess. Big mess. Yeah. Weak. I'm just gonna call it like it is. Weak men. Yeah. It was weak. And we have to. We have to. Like, here's and here's the here's the weight of that responsibility on those called and aspiring to the position of elder within a church. Is that. Those situations, the responsibility of the outcomes from those, sure, some of that will be borne by individuals within the church. But those called into that position of overseer, elder, will stand before God responsible in a way that those individual members are not held responsible, in a way that the deacons within that church are not held responsible. Like those called into this position of overseer, in the, in the event that we have within any classroom within our church, doctrine that's taught that is false doctrine, 
it will be the responsibility of the individual that teaches that false doctrine. Be sure of that. But it will not stop with that individual. So in regard to your question that you asked, which is a loaded one, right? Have you ever seen this? Yeah. Right? You go to doctrine and you think about the idea of what doctrine is. Uh, I'm not to divert, but just man, there's I don't think that there's ever been a church that I've been in that has pro- like totally applied sound doctrine well. Yeah. Right? You have the teaching of sound doctrine. That's one thing. And you can call everyone to teach sound doctrine. But the actual method of applying sound doctrine within the churches, yeah, that's where you see like the breakdown of the teaching getting properly brought into pragmatic practice, yeah. right? And there's, there's a practical aspect to why I think that that... And so there are going to be things that... I, I want to identify first the like... These are the requirements, right? So like for an elder, you are responsible for what's taught everywhere within your church. There's a, there's a trickle down that should be coming by the patterns that, the, that this group of individuals called elders and the lives that they live should trickle down into. But there's also this idea that like if you are asleep at the post or if you were... Or if, you, or if you find yourself in one of those situations where there's a flipping of priorities to where if, if it is true that the Word of God reigning supreme over every aspect of a church is the primary thing of importance and it's traded in for feelings, which is oftentimes like the way that you would see that thing flipped, then those who those who sit by and 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 allow that flip flop of well to not offend, then the primary thing will become secondary. You are responsible. There's that that is that is a a reality that when you like not many people should be called to teach and preach. Right? Like you should consider that weight for the weight that it is. Now, we might find ourselves in a non ideal situation, which is life for the believer. We are not perfect. We are we see the perfect one. He has reached out to us and we are being transformed into his image, but we're not there yet. So we see this ideal. And we know that we fall short of it. And then there's the practical aspect of how do we implement an approach, a practical approach, so that we ensure that that does not happen. That we do not. And I think a lot of times what happens is we see what we have, we have, and, and we see the way that other churches operate, and we say, we have X number of ages, and normally we split ages up by this. And then what ends up happening oftentimes is instead of aligning the organization or structure of the church with the giftings of the church we say here's what it should be because this is the this is the blueprint that we've seen over here at at this other thing that we've identified as successful let's stamp it in here and then figure out how to stuff people in there and then you get someone teaching a class that's 
not called to teach that class, not gifted to teach that class. It's not their thing, but they feel obligated to it because this is the stamp that we have to put to make it look like it should. Right? And then in that, that's one of those practical things. Like we should address, like we should ask ourselves, who's called to teach? And if it's three, then there's three classes. Right? Like, because it's dangerous to have someone who is not called to teach, who feels every time they stand up to do it, the weight of it bearing down upon them, who visualizes that day when then they will stand before Jesus for every word that they have spoken and trembles in fear under it. And that's if you're in a pre-K class. That's if you're in a pre-K class. Because what you teach them there, it doesn't. It, we're not simply talking about adult classes here. It's important from the beginning to the end. So like an example of like how you might see that trickling down, right? Like a unified lesson plan throughout the span of classes, right? Like Gospel Coalition or something. Something like that, right? To where that we have, we say like we have collectively identified this as a as an approach for taking sound doctrine and applying it at the various age groups, and then effectively building up disciples by that means. Like that would be a practical way that you might see this aligning this idea of how do we do this and align it so that we can effectively disciple from the time that they're in the nursery until the time that they're in the grave, right? And every step along the way, us concerning ourselves with the spiritual well-being of each individual at that stage, right? And here's what I think that will happen. If the, if the church applies that effectively, then... Okay, here's I, I would I would say this is one of those areas where we're we're definitely swinging in the right direction because one of the things that you would expect to see in that event is that your children become believers. And how many children have we baptized, right, over the last year? Yes. You will see the result, the fruit of disciple making in the disciples every time. Right? So now, that's an area that's a positive area that we see this playing out. Right? An area where I would I would look and I would say, I see I see fruit of that practical application in the lives of the church. Right? We should thank God every day for that. Right? Because that's establishing something. That if we continue with that alone, like if, if that was the only thing that we did well, then we would be pumping out saved soul after saved soul by way of simply giving birth to children and discipling them well. Because those children will grow up in that same 
following those same patterns that they saw such that they disciple their children in the same way. Such that that simple act of aligning ourselves with the the trustworthy word as it is taught, though we may see it and it be like, how beautiful is it that all of our children have come to Jesus And if you could stare down like the whole way of time to their children and their children's children and their children's children and they continue that pattern of faithfulness, there is no mega church with filled pews that will outnumber that in time. That's an exponential growth type of thing, right? This is also a pattern that you see in Scripture, right? Trustworthy word as taught. So that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so we see two sides to the same coin. Um, we teach the trustworthy word of God. You should see it because when we teach, we are looking at the trustworthy word of God. And as a result, those who are these overseers, these called to this responsibility of elders within a church can identify as a result of holding firm to the trustworthy word, as a result of putting into practice the instruction of sound doctrine, they can identify what false doctrine looks like. And it is their responsibility to rebuke those contradictions. Now, we've talked about church discipline in a past class. When we hear rebuke, oftentimes like we think of like the stiffest forms of rebuke, right? There are gentle approaches that can be applied to rebuke that when you look at it on the surface do not even appear as rebuke to the one being rebuked. Like you can be gentle in reproving someone in such a way that it strengthens them Course corrects gently because we're not saying you were a heretic, but instead, like, consider this. I see that I see that you're striving, striving to put forward sound doctrine, but perhaps you did not consider this particular aspect of what the word says in regards to kind of shore up what this other text says and perhaps without the two together allows you to go further in your analogies or further in your discussion than you should have gone because it was buttressed by another text that guides you. And you're like, consider this. And that individual listens to that and it doesn't necessarily sound like you're a heretic for what you just said. But in their own mind, they're refined by that, right? So this rebuke is not always 
church exiting type of scenarios, right? I think a lot of times when we consider rebuke like this, we think about the worst case scenario is that it was super bad, that was heresy, and that person's never coming back again. That is not every situation here. And this is why it's a pretty weighty responsibility for overseers to be vigilant in overseeing, in looking, in being aware. Right? Practical example of how something like this might play out. Right? And I'm not saying that we do this here. Right? But have some... Let's, let's, let's assume that we have elders. Okay? Um, those that the church would identify and, and, and support. This is, these individuals have been called to this. Um, they fit all of the qualifications. Those elders, having some occasional rotating through classrooms, not for the sake of like a teacher who gets evaluated in the public education system sense, right? but in a closer joining of those called to instruct and hold firm with those who are the like hands and feet in the classroom. So that you're not alone in here, tossed to the wolves, but we're here with you. Right? And in that, multiple things come from that. One, the individuals in the classroom feel themselves seen. Their, their efforts seen by the church that they're faithfully serving. Second, opportunity to hear and understand the doctrines and the approaches that those doctrines, like the, the ways those things are being put forward within those classrooms. Right. Every teacher that's teaching is missing some kind of, I mean, maybe not, the, I don't know, but you know, they're missing like yeah. parts of anything. Man, yes, cool. yes, yes. Um, so like, and and there are, there are other practical things that could be that could be applied there. But but this is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. Like, we need to be considering those things, both the teaching of sound doctrine. And rebuke, and rebuke is easier to do when it's small offense, right? But how does small offense get to like, that's straight heresy? Lack of oversight. Let me put it like that. The overseer's not overseeing. And what happens is those little things compound on themselves until they become big things, right? Where perhaps gentle rebuke could have worked early on now course changing rebuke happens farther down the line right so considering that because the overseers will be responsible for should they have caught that earlier should that have been a thing that they should have noticed early on what are the things that they, like, they will stand before Jesus for the words taught to the people that God gave them to steward within that body of believers. And there is no like, well, this is, they're too young here. 
So this class is less significant. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. So instruction in sound doctrine. Rebuking those who contradict it. There are times, and this is another aspect of this as well, there are times where it was not one of those things where you could have caught that earlier. There are times when evil people do evil things. Right? That occurs. There are times when the wolves come in. And they may sound like sheep when they talk. But they actively work to subvert the church. This happens. This happens. People manipulate. People are manipulators. Right? And the elders of a church, the overseers of a church, are responsible for identifying the wolves when they dress themselves as sheep and find themselves within a body of believers. For there are many who are insubordinate. They don't listen. This is verse 10. They don't listen. They intentionally refuse to listen. Empty talkers. Deceivers. And then he points out some that they were dealing with, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. And we see, a, we start seeing in this, um, I think another supporting point for why the single elder role is dangerous here. Because it should not be the responsibility of a single individual to have to face this type of pushback in isolation. This is one of those areas where it's clear that there, are, there is strength in numbers when there are those who are with all that they have determined to undermine. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So there are a couple of situations that we've seen kind of where we can identify the significance, importance, responsibility of the overseers. One is putting sound doctrine in place and ensuring that it propagates through the life of the church. Another, rebuke those who contradict it, whether it's small things or whether it's big things. And then a third aspect is that outright spiritual warfare, these are enemies approach, right? Because these insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, you, you do that, that is an active thing, right? To deceive is an active action. 
If I'm deceiving you, I know the truth. I know that you may have some piece of it, and I'm working to shift you to a lie. That's active. That's evil. That's not accidental. They are deceivers. And we would be foolish to think that we could just like dancing through the tulips and these individuals never find themselves amongst us. That would be a foolish thing for us to think. So, um, we've got about 12 minutes. Um, I want us to, to jump over quickly and look at the deacons. Um, I, I want to point out here, so let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 really quickly. Um, I want to point out here the qualifications of a deacon. Okay, um, I want us to see as we examine this that there is no difference in character. I think sometimes when we consider these two roles, especially like where we find ourselves here in some type of hybrid, like where deacons and elders, there's like a there's a blended nature to this, um, then we could. There's, there is a dangerous approach to identifying elders and deacons when, we, when, when all who would call themselves deacons could rightly be identified um, with similar characteristics as an elder. How do we tell the difference? Um, we would be fools to think that we tell the difference by the character of the man. That's, that's the point that I want us to get when we look at this. The difference is not the character of the man. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I want us to come back to that, verse 9. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, we've spent a lot of time looking at each and every one of these attributes, each and every one of these character traits that we see here echoed um, in the qualifications for deacons. And I would encourage you, go back listen to those classes if, if you want to double down on um, any of those particular attributes. Um, I will say this is that if you were to identify, if you were to simply identify and try to, try to sort out deacons from elders and you limited yourself to the character of a man, they would be identical. We are looking for the same type of character in those who would be deacons as we would in those 
who would be elders. There is no difference in the character. There's no difference. These these men are trustworthy men. These men are men who steward their families well. The difference between the two... Uh, I think is clear in the text. And let's let's look here at verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I want to let's differentiate that between um, what we're told what we're told in regards to um, the elders or the overseers in regards to they must be able to like these are men who must be able to um, not only hold it in a clear conscience, but have been called and aspired to instructing others to live in like manner. This is the, this is the difference between these. It is, it is not one of character, it is one of calling. God has put in the heart of that individual who he's given the same guidance in regards to character and shaping that individual except he's placed in that person a desire for a responsibility that I would say apart from God placing it there one would be foolish to aspire to Um, it is not one where glory comes from it it is one where it is a weight that comes from it it is a likely lifelong burden in the responsibilities that come from it. That would press down heavy on someone who is just placed in it and not called to it. Um, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They're not called. They're not called to teach. They're not. They're not called to be responsible for these same responsibilities that the elders that we've been examining are called to here. Instead, they are teachable and they treasure the word as it is taught. And you can see that treasuring in the way that it plays out in how they live their lives. Right? You can see it play out. They love the Word of God. They don't love it less than those who would be called to elders. They treasure it. They hold to this mystery with a clear conscience. They're not wavering in it. But simply the difference here being they are not aspiring or called to these other responsibilities that are placed on the elders. Um, Next week, we will look over in chapter 6 of the book of Acts at the um, kind of one of the earliest places where you can see deacons, the responsibilities of deacons being called out um, in Scripture. Um, and we'll further highlight the reality um, that that we are not saying those who are called to deacons don't know how to appropriately read scripture either. Um, that's what I was going to ask. That's, so not, that's not the thing. Should everyone aspire to be a deacon? Um, 
Yeah. So, so there is, write that down, ask, ask that next week. That's a, that's a beautiful question. Um, in, in one regard, I would say yes. Most certainly, those qualifications that you find for both deacons and elders are things that we ought to aspire to. There's a reason I think that it's given in the way that it's given for qualifications in regards to a requirements. Um, because though we may aspire to a thing, there, there are, if we're using this as a lens for wisdom's sake, Right, because these men are serving in the church in a in a unique way. Their families are serving in the church, should be serving in the church in a unique way. The qualifications are safeguards for us, right? Such that if they if this is not us looking at an individual's life and saying you failed miserably there, didn't you? Sorry, you can't be a good Christian anymore. But this is a wisdom for a church that's trying to organize itself in such a way that it doesn't happen again. Right? And there are certain there are certain qualities that we see in this that if we look at that individual and we're like, yes, they fit every one of those, then it speaks to it speaks to the working out of the word in that person's life in such a way that we all understand that there are people that come. And yes, they want to love Jesus and they want to strive for holiness. But what's the difference? Why is it that some can and do and others say they aspire to something like that and it doesn't ever work, right? They can't ever seem to get on the right path. And I would, I would say like holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, right? Not that you're necessarily the teacher, but that when you hear the Word, the Word takes root in you in a particular way, and it's worked itself out in your life in a particular way. That it's not simply that you've aspired towards these things, but that the church can see that God's working you towards those things. It's an office, it's an office yes. in the church, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Somebody saying, I yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and a person might. I think my concern is for the people who have been tested over time and have continuously failed. Like how? Like what? So are we? Do we look down on them? No. No. We we. Yeah, no. Um, there's a there's a sense in which like it's the responsibility of those there to shepherd those who do aspire. Um, but I think I think Blake kind of hit it on the nose is that there's like when we are young, it's easy for us to aspire to many things, right? I want to be an astronaut, and then life comes, and I realize I've got to do this, this, this. This, 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 this. I don't want to be an astronaut. I, I like the idea of, but those things that would get me there, I don't desire to do. 
right? So like, there's an element of like, it is God himself moving in the life of that person that shapes them and pushes them in that direction. And these qualifications help us to identify that God is in fact doing that work. Right? There's a testing that happens here. And just because someone doesn't find themselves in that position, perhaps it's some disqualifying thing that happened in the past, does not mean that they should not strive towards holiness. There's a practical element of this that we all understand. Is that repeat offense is a thing. Right? And it will be Jesus who removes all of our repeat offenses. But he's given us wisdom in identifying those that he is working in for the, for the betterment of the body of believers that will serve in a particular way to where those attributes, if they failed in them, could be catastrophic, right? Like example of this, like someone who um, seemed to meet every other quality, but they can't keep their eyes off of other women. And now they're called to minister to families within the church. Right? Doesn't take much of a stretch for us to think how that could go sideways. Right? So like identifying these, like husband of one wife, helps, help, excuse me, helps protect us from those pitfalls. Because if they're faithful to their wife and they serve their children and family well, then it doesn't remove that risk altogether because people sin and fall, right? People disqualify themselves from these offices. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to stay in fellowship with the church, but I know that the church no longer can say I qualify. Yeah. So they step And not everybody desires it either. Like you approach someone, hey, would you want. And that's. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it better. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was saying. And that doesn't mean that that person doesn't want to serve the church either. Let's be careful to say that if you don't want to be a deacon, that doesn't mean you don't love your church. Right? Yeah. Situation, they're remarried and they're just as yeah. all the characters yeah. and everything. So I don't know, yeah. you know, do we yeah, there's different yeah. ways to look at that. I think that I think that if we understand that what we're identifying here is a pattern Give me one second. I'm, I'm...